Presbyterian that would they would clap, but so yeah, oh look at that. Oh. Thank you. That was lovely. Um, so we're gonna be in Acts again. Um, on the way here, I asked the the family, hey, what do you guys remember about the sermon from last week? What most stands out? They remembered nothing. I hope that's not, I hope that's just the pastor's family and not everyone. But we talked about um, assassins last week, which was awesome. We talked about the, the central, most important thing in all of life, union with Christ. Union with Christ. Remember that? That is the most important thing. Uh, it must be and remain our priority. Um, and then we ended uh, last week um, talking about racism, really. Um, when Paul re- records that Jesus had sent him to the ethne, the nations, the Gentiles, um, then the, uh, the, the Jewish people that had uh, been gathered and had already beaten on Paul a little bit um, called for his life, and, and, and he was removed. And that's where we pick up the story. Um, and, and today, the way that the story unfolds is this brilliant illustration of keeping ultimate things primary, while still faithfully participating in other spheres of life. And so as we read this passage together, and it's a lengthy one, um, as we read it together, listen for how Paul leverages his citizenship and his heritage to get to what for him is most important, and it should be uh, most important for us as well. So uh, brothers and sisters, guests and family, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ from Acts chapter 22, verse 22, and we will read through verse 11 of 23. Remember, Paul has just said, Jesus says, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. And the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune said, Look, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, the the, the tribune unbound Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Verse 23, or chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, 
God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, uh, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, that's a common theme, by the way, commanded that the soldiers go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, we come needy. We come more desperate than we actually understand or, or feel. We come hungry and thirsty, and we've sought to uh, satiate ourselves in so many ways of that hunger and thirst this week. We come dirty um, and, and ruined, and we come longing to see Jesus. Would you open our eyes? Would you unburden our hearts? Uh, would you make Christ real and clear to us, beautiful and believable, that we might see him and run to him and trust him to restore us? We love your word. We love the way we see you in it. And so would you... Um, um, Encourage us as you open our minds to understand it. Um, we thank you for the ways that you use uh, broken and frail and sinful men like Jeremy and Ethan and myself to minister to your people. Would you uh, let that ministry bear fruit? And we ask this all in the name of our risen King, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the passage opens with a group who disagree with Paul's message and view that God's love extends to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus had that message too. If you remember um, the sermon that Jesus preached when he went home, and everybody was so proud, oh my goodness, he is so good. He could be the next Billy Graham. Um, and then he says, oh yeah, uh, and there were only this many widows, but one was healed, and uh, this many uh, Jewish people could have been healed, but God healed the Gentiles, and then his own kith and kin try and shove him off a cliff. Jesus preached grace to the Gentiles as well, and the Jews hated that too. These guys disagree so forcefully that they morph into something like an Antifa mob, they are throwing what they can grab. Now, the reason why they throw dust in this passage is that they're, they're so uh, regularly protesting, regularly frustrated that they kept little handheld rocks out of the temple court. Because if rocks got in, rocks would be thrown. 
And so all they can grab is sand. And that's what they're, they're so mad, they're so ticked that they're throwing sand up in the air and their cloaks. And they're intimidating their enemy such that the police have to step in. And this is good news. Because when you look around at our world, it, at, at cities in America, um, we love the outrage culture. If you look around the world, I, I think I've been praying every day for Hong Kong and the mess there. How great would it be if freedom began to flourish there? It's happening all through Central and South America in large cities and small cities where there is an uprising seeking uh, healing and restoration and there's outrage. And the good news is that that existed before Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. This is a part of our human experience uh, to be outraged at injustice. Now, they were wrong about what was unjust but they were expressing it just the same way when we turn on our news tonight. Um, we will see protests and marches and people throwing things. That, um, it's evidence that the world is a mess then and it continues today. This tribune, the military leader, has had enough of Paul's rabble-rousing. And so to clarify the confusion, he orders the torture of the captive. Now, it was legal for them to flog or scourge someone to determine the truth of a situation. I found a, a diagram with four uh, available options in the Roman uh, military of, of these sorts of whips or scourges, but um, they, they were different but the same. What was the same was that they all had some form of leather strap that within it would be braided knuckle bones um, or some type of lead ball. And they would strip you down and they would tie you out to a post. So your, your back would be exposed. And they would uh, lay that thing over your back. And as it began to grab, they would pull back. So it would, it would expose uh, up to the lungs even. Jesus was probably crucified. You could see through his ribs as he was on the cross. Well, that was what they were getting ready to do um, to Paul. Um, and I'm sure he would have told them whatever he could tell them. Um, but what happens when they flog someone is that nine times out of ten, that person would die. Um, and it was legal for them to do that to anyone except Romans. Roman citizens could not be um, exposed to that part of that treatment. And so the flogging was legal only on Romans if the person in question had already faced a trial and been found guilty. To inflict this treatment on a Roman citizen that was untried and found not guilty meant death for the men that inflicted it. So this tribune would have his own life taken, as would the centurion and all the men that had taken part in it. And so Paul let them paint themselves into this corner before he let it be known. And by doing that, he flipped the script on them. They went from intimidating and threatening to apologizing as soon as that came out. The timing was carefully crafted. It was a maneuver by Paul to switch from this position of weakness to a decision on whether or not to prosecute those men. Verse 29 says exactly that. They, as they found out, they withdrew immediately. They ran away so as he couldn't 
um, identify them if there was some sort of lineup. So the question is, what makes Roman citizenship so special? And it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating study. Roman citizenship is the first citizenship, really. They took it from Athens and Sparta as the Rome Empire or uh, the Roman Kingdom grew and, and captured those Greek parts. They, they found that this democracy, this republic, actually is the best way to extend an empire because it turns out people that have been subjugated like having a say in what goes on in their world. And so for them, for the, for the Romans, citizenship, extending it, granting it to others, became a, a way to sort of evangelize. Um, hey, we would love to set you free. Aren't you tired of being overtaxed? Aren't you tired of being unprotected? Let us have your land. Let us annex you, and we will extend to some of your leaders the ability to have a say in what goes on. So Rome had first been this localized kingdom right around, believe it or not, Rome. Um, and then it, it grew and expanded into a republic. And then eventually, in the mid-40s B.C., it became the empire as Julius Caesar, very briefly, and then Caesar Augustus became the first emperors. And you really don't need a history lesson here, but Western Civ is offered in college for a reason, and we need it. <laughs> Citizenship is important, okay? Um, we, we should value it as a component in our education system because it matters. Citizenship matters. Citizenship defines your relationship to the state by means of rule of law. And what started in Athens and Sparta blossomed in Rome. In a relatively short period of time, basically 100 to 140 years, those who used to be subjects became citizens. Citizens who shared fully in all governmental activities with its rights and privileges and responsibilities. And the reward of citizenship only meant that an individual lived under the rule of law and had a vested interest in his government. Citizens had protection and the ability to participate. And so Paul has flexed now his citizenship muscles in our chapter today, but once earlier in chapter 16, after he was beaten without a trial there, just like the tribune was about to here in chapter 22, but in chapter 16, when he says, you treated me like, a Rome, uh, like, a, like I wasn't a Roman. You beat me, and I'm going to hold you to account. And they, they walk him out. I'm sure they paid him off a bribe and said, let's keep this between us. We just want you to leave. But in chapter 16, it says they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. Slaves, aliens, uh, non-aliens is the non-Roman citizens dwelling and working within the empire. And even Roman women who were citizens still weren't afforded uh, these protections and participations. And so a discussion of citizenship involves borders. Borders because it's a right held out to some men within a boundary as a group loosely tied to a specific location. Citizenship is about society and civics directed, in a sense, by freed men. 
to be citizens as we are, as Americans and, and non-Americans that are citizens here with us, to be citizens in a country like this, the, these are tremendous blessings and we actually should thank God regularly for his mercy to us. Uh, to quote theologian uh, Wayne Grudem, um, he says this in his uh, big theology book on politics. He says, every Christian citizen who lives in a democracy has at the very least a minimal obligation to be well-informed and to vote for candidates and policies that are most consistent with biblical principles. We should, brothers and sisters, care about, we should remain involved in civil life as active citizens because we are faithful Christians. We are not the ones who get to check out and say, we're polishing brass on the Titanic by voting. They're all sinners. They're all going to lead us astray. Yes, they are. So get involved. Plug a hole. Put a finger in the dike and say, not, we're not sinking on my watch. I'm going to get involved. But our citizenship should never, ever, ever define our spiritual heritage as Christians professing faith in a Jewish Messiah. Citizenship is important, but our spiritual heritage is vastly more important. Think of it this way, as important and valuable as Paul's Roman citizenship was for him, Paul mentions it exactly zero times in all his letters. He only mentions it twice in Acts, the two that we've pointed our attention to here in 22 and earlier in 16. In fact, if we could list Paul's defining characteristics, Paul, who are you? First off, Paul would say, I am one who is in Christ. Paul's way of saying, I'm a Christian. I am in Christ. And then way down the list at number two, he would say he's a Jew. And then number three, he would say he's a Pharisee. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And then he would say, I'm Paul of Tarsus. This is Paul saying, I love the Tarsus rockets. I pull for the Tarsus Astros despite their cheating allegations. He has a city that he's proud to be from. And then he would say, I'm Paul of Tarsus in Cilicia. This would be equivalent to his state. Go Longhorns. And then way down the list from there, he would say twice, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. So we need to begin to consider and conduct ourselves primarily and ultimately as Christians. We are in Christ. And then way down the list, we're Americans. And then down the list further, we are whatever your political persuasion is. I think it started with my generation, the Xers. We're the authentic generation. I think it started with my group. And I'm the tail end of the Xers. Some of you are way older Xers than me. But we started leaving the church in droves because the church had so tightly bound itself to one particular political party that the church became an arm of one party. At least the evangelical church did. 
And my generation said, yeah, I don't mind politics. I'll be involved in it, but I need my Jesus separate. I don't need him wrapped in a flag. Our priorities got out of whack, and our churches began to fail. And now the largest growing religious group in our country, in the Western world, is the nuns, not the N-U-N-S. That wouldn't hurt us to grow there, I guess, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. We're bearing fruit, and it's rotten fruit. And we're bearing that rotten fruit because we lashed ourselves not to the cross, but to an elephant or a donkey. Paul's cultural heritage as being a member of the community of God's people, the Jews, was vastly more important to him than the platinum-level position his Roman ID card supplied. So if citizenship defines your relationship to the state, spiritual heritage is about defining your relationship to God, who is of far greater importance than your border realities. Paul appreciates his Roman status and is willing and capable to work within that system. But look at uh, 23 verses 1 through 5. Looking intently at the council, Paul says, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. It goes on and on and on. And then the high priest, Ananias, who was a, a super Sadducee. The, the high priest, remember earlier, that gave Paul letters to go to Damascus and persecute uh, the people of the way. He, that, that priest was Jonathan. He had been assassinated by the Sicarii. And so Ananias was appointed this high priest. So Paul hasn't met Ananias, this high priest, when he was sent away 20-some-odd years earlier, that, that high priest that Paul would have recognized was assassinated. So Ananias, he has no idea. That's maybe going on there. or it, It's for sure going on that Paul didn't know the guy as high priest. But Paul, Paul probably knew Ananias uh, by his reputation. He was shady. He was ruthless. He was ultra-progressive as a Sadducee. He loved the Roman culture far more than he loved the Jewish culture. But he benefited greatly from the Romans. And so he put on his Jewish cloak. We talked about this in our, our Sunday school class this morning. That every uh, time we get near uh, an election time, um, apparently all of our politicians love Jesus deeply. And they make promises that they're going to bring morality back to the forefront. Well, this is kind of the game that Ananias is playing. And, and because of his direction, Paul eats a knuckle sandwich which leads to a little retaliatory comment by Paul. Uh, but when he's informed who he just threatened and mocked, he makes it known that he's willing to abide uh, by their laws around him. And so here's what's important there. Paul can be a good Roman citizen and an observant Jew and a faithful Christian at the same time. But those worlds are for him and must remain for us delineated because they're so different in value and importance. And so consider these contrasts, Rome um, or citizenship and spiritual heritage. The citizenship of Rome grew out as its land expanded. But the Hebrews were a people long prior to land ownership. From the specific location of Rome, its citizens maintained a loose identity 
But the Hebrews shared a common identity despite always being driven from one country to the next, whether by exodus out of Egypt or exile from the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians. Their identity as Hebrews was not tied to where they were located like a a Roman citizens would be. The Romans were freed men, but Hebrews belong. They are owned by Yahweh. Roman citizenship was defined by benefits, but the Hebrews were defined by a commitment to observance of practices, Sabbath, circumcision, temple worship, Passover, and other feasts. Rome built a society. God built a community. And those are two different things. And so we have, on the one hand, citizenship, which is participation in public life that we should seek to do well and labor to bless the places where we dwell, which is a very important aspect of our calling to be in the world but not of the world. And on the other hand, we have this heritage, this heritage of the Hebrew faith that was first planted in Eden, vining its way all through the Old Testament and flowering in Christ and growing into an entire orchard at the pouring out of the spirit we have a public life and we have an eternal life and the problems begin as we allow them to become entwined to the point that America's brand of evangelicalism becomes our religion and replaces biblical Christianity and that's the first bad option and it's the error of the Sadducees the Sadducees were the influential elites of Jewish society in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were so pro-Rome that they were granted the posh appointments and positions of wealth. Now they were the smaller group, but they had greater influence. They had a minimized view of God and his word by subscribing only to the Pentateuch, only to Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For them, that was it as the word of God. And they were willing to maintain many of the feasts and ceremonial practices. But Sadducees only supported the causes that allowed them to maintain political influence and to grow their personal wealth. You may disagree, and I'm happy to talk with you about it, but I am going to climb into some people's kitchens at this point. I'm going to read your mail. To me, that sounds exactly like America's brand of evangelicalism today. It has some of the trappings of Christian traditions and it borrows some shared vocabulary but it more often cares about power, prestige, and popularity more than it does about suffering to make Christ known. It's a religion of comfort, not a religion of cost. The second bad option, that's the one, The second bad option when citizenship and salvation become indistinguishable is an unyielding, deformed doctrinalism, a.k.a. Phariseeism. Now, we have to be careful. Phariseeism, they were the party of both Paul and Jesus, along with most of the first disciples. So it doesn't have to go the evil route. As a whole, the Pharisees, though, were law lovers and rule followers. They were so committed to maintaining the way that it used to be that they had long ceased 
striving to be a light to the nations by coming to them. They were so concerned about measuring every jot and tittle that there was no room left for them to love their Samaritan neighbors. People beyond their borders were a nuisance and a threat. Let me say that again. People beyond the borders of the Pharisees were a nuisance and a threat. Through committed study, they had become masters of the law and knew every loophole that would still allow them to cut corners and keep others marginalized. I want you to listen to this paragraph that I came across in preparation today, and it will bother many of you. There is a problem with our usual appeals to the Old Testament, for we customarily begin with God's concern for ancient Israel and then make a mumbling analogy to God's concern for the USA. Such an analogy does not work because Israel, according to its own articulation, Israel is always small and exposed and vulnerable as a state. By contrast, patriotism in the U.S. entertains no thought of smallness, no thought of exposure, no thought of vulnerability. Thus, the customary interpretive move from Israel in the OT, in the Old Testament, to the U.S. is what he calls a seductive mistake. Brothers and sisters, the church is not, and America is most certainly not, biblical Israel 2.0. We don't need a more conservative church. We don't need a more liberal church. We need a more biblical church. And so I want you to think of, of the myriad of political issues that polarize us as citizens today. And there's nearly no end to it. Here's a few. Borders. Education. Health care. Sexuality. Law enforcement. Abortion. Taxation. Are those issues important? Absolutely. Should churches talk about these things? Should we try to make informed decisions at the poll? Absolutely. But we should never blindly or lazily allow the part that is important, public life, to drive what is ultimate, which is eternal life. The church cannot be Republican any easier than it can be Democrat. It's neither Green Party nor Tea Party and whatever other crazy part. I'm waiting for the Whigs to come back. If we restart the Whigs, I'm going in because I need one. <laughs> so if you find yourself worked up over news stories and social media about them, the other side, the people who disagree with your preference, if you would throw dust and take off your cloak and toss it in the air, Maybe it's time, brothers and sisters, to examine which reality is taking precedence in your heart and your mind. Are your priorities set on the things above and the spiritual heritage in which we live, or are they set on the things below, which are important? Like, no doubt, don't minimize them. Vastly less important, though. Jesus performed miracles. He prayed for and died for his Roman enemies and his Jewish enemies. 
Paul embodied much the same heart as he preached the gospel of redemption for Jews and Greeks. And so wherever you are, wherever you find yourself theologically and politically, spiritually and culturally, the godliest thing you can do in every situation is to seek to honor God as you display the life and message of Christ to every person and situation around you. That's the best you can do. Seek to honor God as you display Christ. Paul, as he's writing to the church he helped plant in Ephesus, says that Christ came into a world of chaos, preaching peace to the Gentiles who had been far off and peace to the Jews who had been always so near. Jesus had a message of peace, and he preached it in a peaceful way. But the church today is just as angry and fearful and divisive as the world at large. And so when your public conservatism or your public liberalism keeps you from approaching your opposite in faith, hope, and the love of Jesus, then you serve an idol and have wandered off the path of Christ. If you are deeply and immensely committed to the principles of the Republican Party and you don't love Democrats, you don't go to them and bless them and feast with them and and have parties with them, then you are not living like Jesus. And we can switch the party out. I say Republican, I don't care. If you are a Democrat and you think that every Republican uh, wants to start a war everywhere and you won't have a, a friendship with them, it's the same for you. Let's make sure we don't lose our aim in the fog So this is the most important argument. Uh, I'm open to friendly debate over any topic, whether theological, cultural, political, whatever. To be fair, the main reason I think we've become so polarized is that we quit having these discussions and just started assuming as a whole that you either agree with me or you're wrong. We stopped asking. We stopped listening. Have you noticed that uh, most homes that are being built don't have porches? We stopped being with each other, stopped neighboring people. And so maybe it would be a good practice to just chat and disagree. Maybe it would be good for us to be bothered by someone else's opinion or position without calling them Hitler. Maybe that's where we could start. Maybe that's a discipleship skill we should sharpen, is being disagreed with. However... There are some things where the church must display a holy stubbornness and absolutely refuse to budge even a millimeter. And on that very small list, at the, 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 the tippy-tippy top of that list is the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. If we give up the physical restoration of the lifeless body of our crucified Lord, then nothing else matters. Everything else in this book is gibberish and pointless. But, if like Ethan read for us, if his bones went back into joint, if the molecules reactivated and his sinews regrew and were restored, if the atoms that made up his heart and lungs and brain came back online, And if the eternal spirit blew a stone door off its hinges and reanimated the Lord, if all that happened, then nothing should ever be the same again. 
We should live such recklessly abandoned lives to this reality, the resurrection reality, that even if it comes to where it's not true, the world should pity us. They gave away so much. They went to foreign countries where there's wars going on. They dealt with homeless people. They, they bought sleeping bags and made sandwiches. They gave up Thanksgiving to serve in soup kitchens. What dumb, ignorant, selfless people. That's what they should say about us. Because the resurrection is real. And if it is, we can face anything the world or Satan and every politician throws our way. We can face anything. So knowing his chances to engage and connect with the council were slim, Paul uses his brief time to highlight the main component of our faith. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And so within his enemies, a fight breaks out, and Paul finds many Pharisees taking his side, at which point things become violent again. Paul is rescued again by the Romans. I think Paul is what Jesus said, be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. I think it looks just like that. In 1996, Benjamin Schreiber beat another man to death in Iowa. And the following year, he was sentenced to life in prison. He was 43. He died in his cell in 2015 at age 66. But a few minutes later, he was resuscitated at the hospital. And here recently, he filed suit, claiming he was being held in prison illegally since he had been sentenced for life and had, in fact, died. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I think his story illustrates the point. Because of sin, whether original sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, or whether our cover of that tune, it doesn't matter. Because of sin, we face either a life sentence or a death penalty. We either serve out our time ourselves for as long as the law demands of us to perfectly atone for our trespasses against a holy God. There's your life sentence. Serve it out. Or we climb into the tomb with Jesus and we wait for new life because we faced a death penalty. And because I believe in resurrection, I willingly go to where he was and I entrust my life and my death and my new life to his nail-scarred hands. Claudius Lysias, the tribune, we'll find out more about him next week. He bribed his way into citizenship by paying a hefty sum to a politician willing to engage in money-making uh, nefarious schemes. Again, look, it was present then and it's present now. People in power love taking money and giving privileges. Claudius was wondering how a man such as Paul could have ever scrimped and saved what it would cost for Paul to buy his citizenship. But Paul was born into it. His citizenship, Paul's did, came as naturally to him as his Jewish heritage. The unnatural part was being born again as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you're here and you're a skeptic and you don't know why you came or someone drug you here and you're not sure what to make of it, let me make this clear. You can't bribe your way in. You can't earn it. 
But if you want into a family like this, in this communion of saints and sinners that are being made to look like Jesus, then we can welcome you and walk with you. And if you'd like to hear more about what new life in the resurrection of Jesus Christ means and looks and feels like and how do you get it, you can go to Chris in the parlor here and he'll talk with you. You can email myself or Ethan or Sarah. Um, you, can, you can call the office and we'll figure out how to get you into the most important thing ever. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Father, make the resurrection real to us. Make it beautiful to us. Make uh, the new life of Christ and us in him our only hope. Awake us up in the morning by singing the song of resurrection life in us. Continue by the spirit that brought Christ back to life to be at work in us. Too many of us believe in death more than we believe in resurrection. And so work that grace in your people and then scatter us out into the nations, into the state, into our neighborhoods here in Tulsa and set us free to live as resurrected people preaching the resurrection grace of our Lord. Do this, our Father, and receive the thanks and praise of your people. Would you stand and sing in response to that?